Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's wonderful to see you all here as part of Sydney Ideas. My name is Fenella Kernerbone, and it's a great pleasure to be the host for this conversation this evening, Fighting Truth Decay, How to Navigate Health in a Post-Truth World. There's so much to unpack. Before we continue, um, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land where we have the great privilege to, to gather here tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I also pay respects to elders past, present and future and acknowledge that it is on their ancestral lands that we are here tonight, that the University of Sydney has built. And as we share knowledge, teaching and learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay our respects to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of this country. So, we have quite a big conversation tonight and there's a lot of you here. It's going to be, it's going to be really fascinating and there's three uh, extraordinary speakers for you as we unpack and explore how corporate interests influence how you and I perceive science and in particular health research. What is truth decay? The science is in, but where are the facts? What does it all mean for people like you and me? There's a lot of ambiguity, there is distrust, there's conversations that continue around the harms of chemicals, immunisation, the effectiveness of drugs, what to eat, what not to eat, except for that ice cream I'm having later on tonight. I shouldn't talk about that, I know that. Our speakers tonight are going to be exploring a whole range of these conversations with you and they're going to be unpacking the complexities for you and influencing the public perception of science. And as Stephen, who's our first speaker tonight, will explain, we are on the eve of World Obesity Day. So it's now my turn and my privilege to introduce our three speakers and I'll just, I'll just say who they are briefly. You can see who they are up here. They're very good. Their names are Professor Lisa Barrow, who's the Director of the Evidence, Policy and Influence Collaborative Research Program at the Charles Perkin Centre here at the University of Sydney. Wave, Lisa. Catriona Bonfilioli, who is a Journalism Studies Academic at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she's also on Twitter, as you can see. And to open up our conversation today and to speak first, here's none other than the Academic Director of the Charles Perkin Centre here at the University of Sydney. His name is Professor Stephen Simpson. Would you please make him welcome? Well, thank you, Fenella. I, too, would like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations and to you all for being here on this um, uh, wet and miserable evening. My, my role in proceedings this evening is just to get us going, to set the background, uh, the context, and as Fenella said, it's the eve of World Obesity Day. Now, how did we end up here on the eve of World Obesity Day in the state that we are as a nation, health-wise? Well, we can take some comfort from the fact that no species in the evolution of life on this planet has ever prospered by running around needlessly or giving up access to safe, palatable food. We're no different, and indeed our biology reflects that. We have a normal biology. We have, however, had the opportunity of an abnormal brain, and that's given us the chance to build a world which quite literally in every respect, um, meets our ancestral heart's desires. So we have food systems that maximise those qualities that were rare or missing in our ancestral environments, calorie-rich, sugar-fat-rich 
foods. We built our cities, our homes and our workplaces so that we can expend minimal energy. We have economic systems that value wealth over health and such that companies that sell us what we want to buy prosper even if what we want to buy isn't doing us any good. Um, we have communication systems that appear increasingly to value conflict and simple answers around um, over evidence and complexity, the reality of life. And we know that prevention is better than cure, but it makes little profit or garners few votes um, in the short term. So what we've done, quite literally, as a consequence, is build a trap for ourselves and stepped into it. So we now have a prevalence of something around three quarters or two thirds of the Australian adult population are approaching overweight or obesity, a quarter of our children. The costs to society economically and socially are extraordinarily high. But we're nonetheless healthier than we've been in the history of mankind and longer lived. So there has been um, an upside to that. So what we've essentially done, as I say, is built a mesh and trapped ourselves within it. And this is the so-called foresight map, which came from the UK. And what it does is it shows where you sit, right at the middle of this tangled spaghetti map of influences, all of which impinge upon your biology in ways that are encouraging you, ultimately, to become an unhealthy waste with all of the health consequences that go with that. What we need to do is somehow to reweave that tangled web. And what we're now understanding is that we all have a part to play in that as individuals, as communities, the private sector, the health system, governments and more. And really things are starting to change and this is one of the really encouraging things about where we are now in this journey. So we're seeing the formation of alliances both nationally and internationally, of agencies and research groupings and not-for-profits who have an interest in solving this problem. Even public perceptions are starting to change. So we here at the Charles Perkins Centre did a survey of around 2,000, a nationally representative survey of around 2,000 adults uh, last year, and found that now 92%, the vast majority of people, find the current health problems as being worrisome, really worrisome. And better than that, actually, around 90% felt that there should be at least some government intervention um, or regulation. For example, restricting unhealthy food advertising um, specifically to children garners about 70% or more public support amongst that um, representative sample. The private sector is starting to see the opportunity. Um, we recently, for example, worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers to develop uh, an economic modelling platform to understand what are the costs of acting or failing to act when it comes um, to the national obesity crisis. But challenges still remain, and they're at many levels throughout that um, web I showed you earlier. They're personal, they're social, they're ideological, political, to do with the way we structure our health systems and our economic systems. But the thing that we really have to challenge is the frame of personal responsibility. 
and that's associated with blame and stigmatisation, and we need to shift across to a model of shared responsibility. It's too easy to blame the individual when what we need to be doing is not abdicating individual responsibility, but rather supporting and empowering individuals, families, communities to live healthier lives by offering effective pathways to prevention, treatment and care. And that's really what this evening is about. It's trying to help um, give some guideposts and guidelines to how you might go about that in the context of some of the distractions that are coming, um, particularly from some of the economic and political um, motivations that uh, are conflicting with the betterment of population health. And what we have done, and on the 31st of July, um, was lead and launch the development of a new movement, and we call it the Obesity Collective, which is a whole bunch of NGOs, academics, um, young entrepreneurs, people in the private sector, community leaders, government, healthcare providers, and others. And we've all come together as a single entity to really support a movement for change, a new action on obesity. So that's our contribution to the future, certainly to tomorrow um, with the, the World Obesity Day and to the rest of the evening when we now turn um, to the particular issue of truth decay. So on that note, I'll um, hand over to Fenella again. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen, and we'll ask more questions about those challenges and how to solve some of those big, thorny problems. She's here already, which means she's ready to rumble. Would you please give a huge round of applause to Lisa Barrow? So I thought I would start today by showing these headlines, because we can absolutely all relate to these headlines. They're about conflicting dietary advice, right? Guidelines are good, guidelines are bad, eat more dairy, eat less dairy, eat less salt, but don't eat too little. I mean, isn't it frustrating? Don't you go crazy when you see this kind of stuff? And so, what's wrong with the scientists? Why can't they agree? And actually, scientists agree a lot uh, about the evidence around health. And in fact, uh, some of the controversy that we have isn't coming from the scientists. And so that's what I really want to talk about this evening, is where is this so-called controversy uh, coming from? And I use the term truth decay because this is a, a term that was actually coined by the RAND Corporation when they were uh, trying to describe how opinion is taking much more precedence over facts in political decisions and public debates about politics. And truth decay has a few characteristics. One is that there's disagreement about facts. Another is that anecdotes are used a lot more than facts. And the third one is that uh, experts are distrusted. So when I saw that, I thought this is actually a really great frame to think about evidence and the debates around evidence and what's happening uh, with um, evidence and recommendations related to health. And if we don't fight truth decay, it has consequences. It results in confusion about information. It results in controversy. This then leads to decision paralysis. And worse yet, it can lead to decisions that result in harm. So when we think about the complex issue of obesity that Steve was talking about, 
Truth decay is very important because if we have controversy and confusion about what to do, we'll have decision paralysis, and this can be one reason we don't have a national policy on obesity. This is one reason people don't know what to do sometime to tackle this complex problem. But we actually have a lot of evidence out there that we can be using. So my particular interest is in the role of corporations and financial conflicts of interest in perpetuating truth decay uh, in decisions related to health and evidence. And so corporations have a very long history of influencing evidence on health and decisions uh, about health. So think back, 1969, Tobacco companies were extremely worried about the scientific consensus on the harms of tobacco and the quite large evidence base then about the harms of tobacco. And so the tobacco companies got together to decide what to do about this. And this is a quote, a direct quote from a tobacco document released years later uh, that explains their plan. This is coming from someone in the tobacco industry and it says the Tobacco Institute, their trade organization, has done a good job in the area of politics, and as an industry, we also seem to have done very well in turning out scientific information to counter the anti-smoking claims. But there's no question that we've been inept in getting our side of the story, good though it may be, across to the news media and to the public. So this is the plan that was launched to not only produce evidence, but change public perception of evidence. And they were using all the tactics we see with truth decay. In fact, this document goes on, it's quite interesting to say that the Tobacco Institute has no personality and it's not famous. And so they had to actually get people to represent the Tobacco Institute who would have that personality. And then it just sums up with a quote many of you have probably seen, our consumer I have defined as the mass public, our product as doubt, our message as truth, and our competition as the body of anti-cigarette fact that exists in the public mind. So this all speaks to truth decay. It's about generating doubt and controversy about the evidence. And so you may be saying, well, that's just old news. This doesn't happen anymore. So fast forward to 2017, when the World Health Organization released a report on tobacco that um, reported that 7 million people a year are still dying from tobacco-related disease in 2017. And Nigel Farage, uh, the UK Parliament and um, Brexit fame, issued this tweet. The World Health Organization is just another club of clever people. They want to bully us and tell us what to do. Ignore. And just a bit earlier, he had said, I think the doctors have got it wrong on smoking. So this is truth decay, right? This is an example of denigrating the experts when, of course, we have a huge body of fact in 2017. So now you may be saying, well, it's just tobacco, you know, it's just that bad tobacco industry. But it's not, because I have spent the last 25 years working with incredible teams of researchers to actually study the tactics that a variety of corporations use to influence evidence and the interpretation of that evidence. So that includes 
tobacco companies, food companies, chemical companies, pharmaceutical companies, and of course, many of these companies are now linked uh, to each other. So all of this research has led us to develop this model for how corporations influence the body of evidence, so what we actually know, and then public discourse about that evidence. So I just want you to focus on the orange boxes there, because those are the four strategies I'm going to talk about. One is corporations' funding of research. Another is their publishing and spinning of papers that look like research but aren't really. Then there's their suppression of research. And lastly, up on the left there, their attempts to influence science policy to change how we evaluate research. And I'll give you examples of each of these from different industries um, that illustrate truth decay. But let's just start with the research agenda. So by that, I mean the topics that companies fund. Why is that important? That influences the entire body of evidence. And what we know, and it's not that surprising, you'd think, is that companies tend to fund research that supports their product or their position. And why shouldn't they do that? Well, it might actually not be in the best interest of public health. So think, for example, we have done studies that have shown that food companies are much more likely to publish studies of a single nutrient than of <clears throat> dietary patterns, for example, or whole foods. And this means that they can then market products that have or don't have that nutrient for a market advantage. But as we see from the complexity of obesity, putting on the market a granola bar that has no sugar or is high in protein is not going to solve the obesity epidemic. So we need to look at broader questions related to public health. And another problem with corporate funding of the research agenda is that companies are able to produce evidence that distracts from their product as a problem. So we've done research uh, following up studies that Coca-Cola has funded, that we found out about from their databases. And we found that over 40% of those studies funded by Coca-Cola were on physical activity. And only about 12% uh, were actually on sugar, which you think might be relevant to Coca-Cola. And so this is an example of how the company's research could distract from sugar as a problem and focus efforts and flood the scientific literature with research on physical activity. Again, it's only giving us a slice of the solution to the problem. So companies can influence the research agenda, which is basically all of the research available to us to make decisions. But companies can also influence individual studies. And we have shown this over and over with different types of industry-funded studies. So this is just one example. So these are studies that ask the question, are artificial sweeteners associated with weight loss? So what do you think the answer is? It depends on who was funding the study. <laughs> so if you look at that first set of bars on the left that has results under it, those are the actual findings of the data, the results of the study. And what we see in blue is the artificial sweetener company-sponsored ones. Over 70% of those 
had data showing that artificial sweeteners were associated with weight loss, but less than 10% of those funded by other sponsors did in the orange bars. And then if you look at the conclusions, that's what the papers actually concluded. Um, and all of the findings look more positive there due to spin. So people are taking the results of the study and making them look better. But we still see that the bluish um, artificial sweetener sponsored studies are more likely to have a favorable finding. So why do the studies funded by the artificial sweetener companies get so consistently different favorable results compared to those funded by other companies? Well, there's a lot of subtle ways to influence the outcome of a study, and I don't have time to go into that tonight, but a lot of my students have told me I teach a great class on how to bias a study and many of them have been recruited by pharmaceutical companies as a result. So there are many, many ways to do that. I'd be happy to talk about it. So this is all about actual real research, but we also have an industry strategy to publish research that's not based on data. So this is a cover of the British Medical Journal, and the whole issue was focused on pharmaceutical industry funding of what are called key opinion leaders. And these were people that produced articles that were favorable towards drugs. Um, and they were maybe narrative reviews or opinion pieces. They weren't research-based articles. And sort of the most common way this occurs is through ghost-written articles. So this is an article that's published in a real journal, and it's uh, about a drug named gabapentin. And the article concludes that gabapentin, the drug, is effective and safe. That's the bottom line, effective and safe. So that looks good for the makers of gabapentin. So this particular article was a series of 30 articles that were planned by an education company hired by the maker of gabapentin to produce ghost-written articles. So that meant the education company wrote the 30 articles, and they planned what journals they would be published in, and they got them published. And then people like Dr. Marin here were paid $5,000 a piece to put their name on the article, although they had no um, input into it. So that's ghostwriting. And this has, again, come out a lot through internal industry documents. So, so far, we've been talking about pushing a lot of information into the literature to influence the evidence base in favor of a particular product or position. But the flip side of that is that companies can also suppress research to affect the evidence base. So often, entire studies are suppressed, but what's even more common is what's called cherry-picking of the data. So these are examples of um, just two different studies I've done, of pharmaceutical industry-funded studies in this case, where the gray bar um, part of the pie shows the proportion of results of a study that weren't published. So what we see here is only about half of the studies uh, un, uh, sorry, only about half of the unfavorable outcomes were published in this sample, and in the other sample, only about half of the primary outcomes, which are the important ones, were published. So how this might happen, let's think of the weight loss example again. So if you're doing a study where your outcome is weight loss, you could measure that in different ways. You can measure that by weight in kilograms, uh, BMI, 
um, waist circumference, and you can measure it at different times, say six weeks, eight weeks, three months. And if the study is done, and there's only a significant decrease in weight loss for BMI at eight weeks, those outcomes could be published, and the other ones might not be published. So this is what is represented here, only some of those outcomes get published. So there is suppression of research itself, but companies are also guilty of suppressing researchers. And this is because there's many independent researchers out there who are funding, or sorry, publishing things that don't support the company's position or product. And so this is an example, again, from a drug industry document, in this case, uh, from the drug company Merck, and it's a list of scientists who were to be discredited and neutralized because they were publishing things not favorable to Merck's products. So neutralized means that they actually um, were stopped, they, they stopped publishing unfavorable things. That's what neutralized meant. And discredited meant the scientists did not stop publishing unfavorable things, but either their work or themselves, they were, they were discredited. Um, so that was the plan. Now, I've been subjected to this a lot uh, over the years from the tobacco industry, not the pharmaceutical industry, including one effort to fire me. Um, so this actually happens across all corporate interests. So I guess I wasn't too surprised that this was my welcome, uh, one of my welcomes to Australia. But when you think about it, I think my boss Steve might have been a little surprised. But anyway, when you think about it, why shouldn't Coca-Cola monitor independent researchers, right? They want to know uh, what independent researchers are doing. So all of this is kind of newsworthy, but frankly, this is a lot less interesting and important than corporate influence on science policy, which is just my last example here. So much less interesting, this is a very boring looking document, um, which is what a US law looks like. And this is a law uh, called the Data Access or Quality Law. And this law was uh, sponsored by and heavily lobbied by the toba tobacco companies, the National Rifle Association, and a wide variety of chemical companies. And I blew up some text from that law because it sounds so great on the surface. The point was to increase the quality, objectivity, integrity of research that could be cited in any government document, including statistical information. But when you look at that, what this law actually did was it changed the level of statistical significance that was required to call something uh, significant for measures of harm. So think about that. Why would the chemical companies sponsor this bill? because it would make it harder statistically to show that something was harmful. And this is still happening today. This is last year, I've written about this document, the Brussels Declaration. This is an international document on ethics and principles for science. Again, it just sounds great on the surface, and it's setting all these standards for science. But when you actually dig into this document, it was sponsored by tobacco and alcohol companies. That's it. And the whole point of the document was to generate controversy and confusion about data on harm reduction. So this is, again, I think one of the really serious uh, strategies that are used to influence policy. So I've covered those bits and given you just one example from one company here and there. 
about funding, suppressing, publishing research, and influencing policy. And the idea is that this all is designed to influence the whole body of evidence and the way the public talks about that evidence to generate controversy and confusion. But we can fight this. We can fight truth decay by stacking the scales on the side of facts and not opinions. And there's many ways uh, we can do that. And I start with transparency. We need to know a lot more about the actual role of corporations in producing and disseminating evidence. We're in our group working a lot with pharmaceutical uh, transparency databases. These are a great start, but they should extend across all sorts of corporations. I mean, we can wait for documents to come out in legal cases, but that takes decades. It's just too long to wait. We need transparency now. We also need independent scientists to uh, get involved. We need independent science to recognize when research efforts are being hijacked by industry and just not participate. And we also need independent scientists to be the drivers behind changes in science policy and not just follow along when those are driven by corporations. And we also need policies that will limit commercial influence on research. And we need to help policymakers. We need networks of independent scientists who are linked with policymakers. And I know we have these at the University of Sydney. We have one on pharmaceutical policy in our group. But it just makes it easier for policymakers to get the independent information and not information from companies. And then lastly, we need to educate re other researchers, consumers, um, policymakers, and journalists about the role of corporations in influencing evidence and the dissemination of evidence. This should be part of everybody's critical appraisal training. And I've done these kind of um, workshops all over the world. We're currently doing some now with uh, consumers, and our next ones will be in early December. So I just want to finish by saying it is not impossible to tackle these complex problems like obesity or corporate influence on research. We just need cooperation and collaboration across a wide variety of sectors and a wide variety of individuals. And most of all, we really need the public behind this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much to Lisa Barrow. I would like to come to one of your workshops, Lisa. I feel like we, we could all benefit from it. So on that note, our, our final speaker before we move into our panel our conversation is uh, Lisa Bonfiglioli. Please give her a round of applause. So thanks for being here. Um, it's a bit exciting. Oh, here we go. Here we go. So. Um, as uh, you probably know, I come from um, a journalism background and I now uh, teach and research in the field of um, media studies and journalism studies with a particular focus on health. And uh, I wanted to start with some examples of media and to make the assertion that solving the problem is simple. I'm basing this on the messages that we receive from the media every day. Um, and it's very simple. You just have to eat less and move more and the problem of obesity will go away. Or is it? Now, we've seen this map before. It's kind of complicated. Um, this is um, based on evidence, and it's from the UK, as Stephen said, because the media are actually recognised as key drivers of weight gain. 
But before I get into the media, I want you to um, just pay attention to some of the obesogenic environmental drivers of um, weight gain and physical activity and nutrition. So um, according to Mackenbach and colleagues, the most clearly proven environmental drivers of obesity are urban sprawl and land use mix. Um, other factors are access to recreation, proximity to fast food outlets, walking and cycling infrastructure, food environment, healthy and unhealthy food, availability, walkability, density of fast food restaurants, supermarket location and costs, public transport versus car dependency, park and sidewalk quality, and public safety. It's a long list. And um, we have a lot of choice in our obesogenic environment. Um, as you can see, if you go to this nice part of inner Western Sydney, you have plenty of choice of which kind of fast food you're going to eat. So the foresight map that I just showed you includes media availability, it's prolific, media consumption, we're all binge-watching, passive entertainment options, of which there are many, TV and video games come to mind, media impact on attitudes, including to body images and food, terribly important, exposure to food advertising, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, and TV watching. But what else is there in the obesogenic media environment? <laughs> okay, so there's the advertising thing we're exposed to is widespread, it's very sophisticated, we can't escape it, it's on our buses, it's on our telephone booths, it's online, it's in our video games, it's in our news feeds. Um, and often it's promoting high salt, high fat, high sugar foods and drinks. Labeling of food and drink is very contentious, I think it's woefully inadequate, um, and that includes alcoholic drinks, which usually do not tell you anything about their calorific value. And then media coverage, which is my expertise um, of obesity in general, but particularly of the environmental drivers, including planning, sedentary workplaces, sedentary entertainment, long working hours, food composition, and regulation. There's also media transmission of blame, stigma, stereotypes, and discrimination. So does anybody in this room, work inside most days. Would you like to wave your hand if you work inside most days? Lucky you in this kind of weather. Tell me, do you work sitting down? If you put your hand up, if you generally work sitting down, thank you. And if you generally work standing up? Yeah, quite a few of you. And just to put your hands up again if you actually have a choice about whether you work standing up or sitting down. Nice. All right. So there's a bit more flexibility in the workplace than when I first started working sitting down. Okay. So I just want to mention briefly, there's a couple of other drivers that are beyond individual control. Uh, genetics, disability, other illnesses, and the side effects of medication. So there's a lot out there apart from eating less and moving more that we have to contend with. Now, it's very easy to bash the media and say they do a rubbish job, but it's not actually true. The journalists in Australia, especially the specialist health and medical journalists, do a terrific job. And I just want to point out this pioneering article by Julie Robotham and Cheryl Nixon. It's a while ago now, but they really nailed the whole issue of um, environmental drivers of obesity. So they reported on fast food advertising and urban design, 
and public transport infrastructure, safe walking to school. You can see a happy picture of people walking to school safely up here. Portion size, there's a whole PhD, probably there's probably hundreds of PhDs in portion size. Working hours um, and uh, stand-up desks, which are a little bit controversial right now, and so is the science, but it's coming in. And food labeling, another few PhDs there. So there's also recently been a bit of a hoo-ha around sugar tax. It's very contested and makes great conflict news for the journalists to get their teeth into. Now, the Australian Research Council Discovery Project that I've been leading has found that after rising up the news agenda for a while, regulation of environmental drivers has become less prominent in the news. And we're left with the usual pattern of coverage dominated by news about the causes of obesity, the size and the cost of the problem, weight loss success stories, and various solutions. In previous analyses by researchers at the New South Wales Centre for Overweight and Obesity, we found TV news and current affairs about obesity mostly blamed individuals or their parents for the problem of obesity. This kind of blame-the-victim coverage means that policymakers can focus on education, eat less, move more, instead of on contentious taxes and regulations. And industry can get on with designing food to be very more-ish, usually by including large doses of sugar, salt and fat, creating portion sizes that are way out of proportion with daily needs, although there has been some development in this area. Take, for example, the 100-calorie snack packs and the drastic changes to the baked bean can size, um, and fobbing us off with ineffectual nutritional labels and promoting their food and drinks. That's a tiny little dot point there, but it's a big, big issue. So marketers work very hard to link their brands with positive qualities such as goodness. So good. So good. And addiction, don't forget that. Goodness and wellness and happiness. Okay, um, they also um, want to make it fun. So if you like ice cream, which I do, you can colour in your favourite character that's probably not aimed at adults. You can share a Coke with Amy, Bob, Bobby, Jack, Zach, or pretty much anyone. There's a, there's, a, there's a lovely one example of these on the internet where this word is uh, obesity, but I can't tell you whether it's real or a spoof, so I didn't use it. You can play games with KFC, you can do virtual soccer with a Pepsi vending machine, and you can capture happiness with a Coca-Cola selfie stick. So it's very sophisticated, it's lots of fun. The other thing they're doing to increase their health, Halo, is linking um, unnecessary foods with physical activity. So, um, first of all, you need energy. You need energy. This is a key message in a lot of um, marketing for foods you really don't need at all, and especially drinks you don't need at all. And you can burn off your treat food by being physically active, by running. Where's the running? Yes. 99 calories or less if you run. That should be fewer, of course. Run to get another one. <laughs> Sorry, once a sub-editor, always a sub-editor. And um, trampolining, this tiny thing on the Nutella is a trampoline. Have you ever looked at the nutritional pack on a Nutella? It's delicious stuff, but ooh, yeah. Um, playing basketball, see over here, a little, it could be a netball thing, but I think it's a basketball thing. And then uh, just kicking the can, you know? What a lot of fun. More fun, more physical activity. It goes on. Um, Food and drink makers are also very agile developers of new products to offer you choice and variety. 
And these qualities tap into our natural instinct to eat more when there's a variety of foods around, even if it's just a different color label. You know, it could be the packaging is different and not the actual content. Uh, raspberry, Coke, or Pepsi, anyone? I'm trying to be very balanced here, mentioning both Coke and Pepsi. Um, I should say also that beverage makers are working very hard to develop and market sugar-free soft drinks. So I can't say that they're not active in this area. But the more choices we face, the more likely we are to use our instincts instead of our rational thinking to select foods and drinks. And Deborah Cohen has done some wonderful research in just articulating all the reasons why we as human beings make decisions which are not particularly sensible from a health point of view. And marketers love how to tap into those instincts. But obesity is still just a matter of individual responsibility. We know this because of the way the media, all kinds of media, not just the news media, repeat this message. We know that putting on weight is just a matter of eating too much and moving too little. And there's a cost to this victim blaming. We, do, we still do not have traffic light labels to help us avoid unhealthy foods. And we know that those work from the British experience to generate pressure to make manufacturers reformulate their food to get those red traffic lights off their labels. Industry has worked very hard to resist the traffic light labels, and instead we've got the Health Star, which allows unhealthy products to carry an actual star. Now, if you've ever been to preschool or primary school and been given a star, it's usually a sign that you've done something pretty good. Okay, so if the problem of obesity is a lifestyle choice, then logically the solution is individual changes in behavior. A much deeper cost is the impact on people of size, their mental well-being, and even their weight gain. Media images and stories communicate blame and stigma, and this actually leads to weight gain, according to research by Alexandra Bruce Slade and her colleagues. We live and travel and work and play, surrounded by advertisements for things we don't need, and that means each of us has to plan our own nutrition and our exercise very carefully. We need to stick to our plans and resist temptation over and over again. Enormous pictures of burgers and ice creams are on our buses and our hoardings, and these force us to think about food, and they trigger our desires, no matter what sensible thing we had for breakfast. Has anybody noticed um, a particular smell associated with a particular brand of fast food outlet? Can anybody think of an example? Subway? Yes. And there's another one. Pardon me? KFC? Yes, okay. Anybody else? McDonald's, there's one more lurking out there. It's round, it has a hole in the middle. Anybody smelt that smell? Wave if you have. Okay, oh, okay, thank you up there. Yeah, so that, it's almost like the smell is part of the brand and the Subway to me is the most distinctive. I have got one of those noses that, that works, which is not always an advantage. Okay, so even news photos can have this effect. So I love this picture. Um, we did a study, we interviewed 46 members of the public and we asked them, and from five different weight categories, and we asked them, what do you think about the way the media communicates about overweight, obesity, inactivity, and physical um, activity? And we used trigger materials, including lots of news stories and news photographs. And We'll come to the headlessness thing in a minute, which you're probably aware of, but we wanted to have a picture of a person who was large 
and whose face was on, on display. So this is a photograph used with a news story. And we said, we asked the participants, how does this make you feel? And we were a little bit surprised when we got this response. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, you know, we shouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> Because, as Deborah Cohen noted in her neurophysiological responses to food marketing, We have things called mirror neurons, and these mean that we instinctively copy what other people are doing. So I challenge you, when you next sit down in your comfortable chair or sofa to watch some TV, just wait till the next person starts chugalugging and ask yourself, do you suddenly feel the urge to pick up your glass and have a drink? In fact, I'm starting to feel like I need a drink myself. Okay, of water, of course. And parents among you will know of the pester power of children, which is currently stimulated by sophisticated advertising, games, toys, cartoon characters for foods and drinks laden with unnecessary energy and sadly lacking in essential nutrients. So in our studies, we found very few news stories actually tackle the issue of weight-related blame, stigma and discrimination. And the embarrassing rarity of specialist clinics to help people with weight problems, including children, is also rarely reported upon. Instead, we find routine use of decapitated images of fat people. There's a very nice essay by Charlotte Cooper on headless fatties. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very serious essay, honestly. And uh, I've done a whole study on this with um, Philip Mills, which I'll come to. Anyway... This practice, while this practice arguably preserves the privacy of fat people, it also dehumanizes them and marks a clear boundary between us and them. They are presented to us as objects for us to think about. Um, and just like stories about smoking harms are peppered with pictures of headless smokers. So a story with a headless fat person is likely to be a story without a fat person's voice. All these stories about obesity, and we're not asking obese people to talk about obesity, just as we do not ask homeless people to talk about homelessness in news stories. Not every news story about homelessness lacks a homeless person's voice, but many, many do. So in a UTS-funded study of media images of obesity, Philip Mills and I demonstrated that overweight and obese people are much more likely to be portrayed without their heads or their faces than healthy weight people. This is another way of excluding fat people from the in-group, us. The exception is the biggest loser. Um, Where, which allows very large people to tell their own stories, although we also found that presenters and trainers were more likely to have their quotations present in an episode of The Biggest Loser than the voices of the contestants. So the other problem is that obesity is portrayed using images of very obese people, which means people who are merely overweight or mildly obese are able to say, thank goodness, that's not me, and tuck into another burger and fries and wash it down with a sugar-rich beverage. So despite the many news stories and the health campaigns, the, the message on prevention may not be getting through exactly. So this is a quote from the young lady. It's not unhealthy. If you're fat, you shouldn't eat it. But if you're skinny, you should. And this is a story about um, the offer to do home delivery of Maccas. So the problem with media is very much wider than news media reporting. 
And the invention of the internet and the birth of social media mean that it has never been easier to push unhealthy, ineffectual, and possibly dangerous solutions to obesity to an ever-increasing online audience, to mock, belittle, and troll people of size, to like, comment on, and share information of dubious quality, and to contribute to the viral spread of memes which are harmful to other people or promote products and ideas which go against the scientific evidence on weight gain and weight loss. Luckily, it's also easier than ever to seek and find high-quality health information from responsible sources created by people dedicated to putting evidence at the heart of their communication. Are there things that we can do to combat the obesogenic media environment? The answer is yes, of course. Be a seeker, rely less on social media news feeds, and seek reliable sources of information. Place your trust in people and organizations who have your best interests and, at heart, and look around for communicators who have a professional duty to tell you about health, nutrition, and exercise in a responsible way. This means health departments, health professionals, health organizations, and yes, journalists. Be a questioner. If something sounds too good to be true, dismiss it, or at least look more closely to see who is pushing this information at you, what evidence do they present to support their claim, who are they quoting to bolster their position, and is their communication just there to trick you into wasting your time and boosting their advertising revenue? Be a responsible communicator. So we're all producers now, as Axel Brunn says, um, and we're all doing our own little bit of posting and tweeting and Instagramming and Pinteresting and WhatsApp and Snapchat, etc. Um, we need to be responsible communicators. So journalists and public relations professionals have codes of ethics which guide their practice, and I'd like you to put on your journalist hat and think about how professionals work hard to bring you high-quality information through seeking multiple sources locating reliable sources, verifying facts and evidence before publication. And when I say publication, I mean that stuff that you're doing on social media, even as we speak, perhaps. Also, personal note, support policy initiatives which help to prevent weight gain across the population. Break out of this conventional wisdom about what works to prevent obesity and celebrate leaders who are putting health first in their policy decisions. If you could refrain from blame, that would also be terrific. How can you know how a large person came to be that way? How hard they're working to stay well? What illnesses or genetic inheritance are influencing their weight? And what powerful forces shape their so-called choices? So on that note, we have unpacked and discussed and thought about and, and, and considered truth decay, navigating truth, of course, in our, in our world at the moment uh, and, and health at the same time. Uh, fascinating discussion, and you will be able to listen to it, ladies and gentlemen, online as it is part of the amazing podcast series that you can listen to, um, which I have to say I've been listening to as I fall asleep each night. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, everybody, for coming into this it's a really fascinating mm. Sydney Ideas event. Please thank Catriona Bonfioni, Lisa Barrow, and Stephen Simpson. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.